So I'm wondering how you're doing. (laughs) Some of you have just gone through your first 24 hours of silence. Quite a quite a group of you here who are on your first residential retreat and it's quite an accomplishment actually not many people in the world have done that you know this kind of retreat this is a retreat right retreat from the world from the worldly uh, responsibilities and our usual way of being in our life so we're really retreating from that so I will look forward to hearing from some of you tomorrow when I meet with you and hear your experiences. Because it's usually, oftentimes, the first day, it can be challenging, can be difficult. Um, the The Buddha actually has a list. He has many lists, but <laughs> many lists have come down from the Buddha. But one of the lists that, that came down is called the, the hindrances or the five difficult mind states. And the five difficult mind states that one encounters when they sit down and come into meditation and look at their own mind. There's these five difficult mind states. And it seems like no matter whether you're new at this or practice for a very long time, seems like these mind states tend to arise in the beginning of a retreat till we start to settle down and get a little bit more connected. So this, the five are the wanting mind, this wanting mind that wants something different than what's actually happening. Or the not wanting mind, you know, the opposite. I don't want what's happening. I want something else. So it's really just the converse. One is the desiring. One is the, avers- the aversion and the rejecting. And then there is the uh, sleepiness. It's probably something that many of you have felt. Sleepiness, tiredness. Uh, in the teachings, it's called sloth and torpor. You know, great word, right? Sloth and torpor. It really feels like that. And then the opposite of that is the restlessness, where there's too much energy. You can't really sit very still. The the body and the mind are all agitated. The mind's going here and there. can't land anywhere. And the last one is doubt. We really start to doubt ourselves and doubt doubt our experiences and doubt what's happening and why did I come? And this was a really stupid idea. (laughs) What made me think of coming to a retreat like this? You know, a lot of doubt. Doubt about the practice, doubt about the teachings, do they really work, doubt about the teachers, who are these people anyhow, and what do they know, and so I'm just kind of curious with a hands up, we'll go through the five, so (laughs) how many people had wanting mind today, wanting something to happen that wasn't happening, right, wanting, wanting, okay, How many people had the more aversive mind, didn't like what was happening, and had some, you know, ill will and judgment and, okay, half and half, yeah, usually. How many people were sleepy today? I knew we were going to get almost everybody. (laughs) How many people experienced some restlessness and agitation yeah, also really strong. Usually, you know, that you go back and forth between the two. Very tired, we don't even know if we can, you know, open our eyes or lift our body. And then the next time we're just like, <laughs> can't sit still. And then the last one, doubt. Self-doubt or some doubt about yourself and the teachings. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is... The Buddha, the Buddha talked about this 2,500 years ago. He said, yep, this is what happens. <laughs> you sit down and you look at your mind and your heart and you're going to see these kinds of mind states, these kinds of patterns. And so it's not unusual, as you see. I mean, just about everybody in the room had these uh, experiences. But what's interesting is sometimes they come in um, multiples, you have a multiple hindrance attack, right? They're coming one, one after the next and you're sort of, you know, not sure how you're going to manage it all, right? 
So this is really one of the reasons why we, the practice of kindness is so vital. Because if we don't have any, any way to work with these difficult mind states, we're just going to continually be caught in the cycle of these mind states. And if we don't have some understanding or some awareness about what they are, even naming them and having kind of, oh yeah, there's the wanting mind, there's the aversive mind, there's the doubt, there's the sleepiness. You know, really seeing, seeing these states for what they are, if we get into uh, a way we start to personalize them and say something's wrong with me and judge ourselves and think it should be different and we just keep adding more and more on top of these uh, already difficult mind states, we're just strengthening them and reinforcing them and getting more caught and getting more caught in the cycle of, these, of, this, of the pain. So it's so that the, 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 the step out is a step into a kinder response. A kinder response where that can come into some quality of, of acceptance, of allowing, even welcoming or this friendliness. It's like, okay, that's my mind. That's what's happening right now. We take it so personally. We, we identify, it's like something's wrong with me and something's wrong with the way I'm practicing. But rather, these are just states of mind. These are patterns that come and they go and they change and they uh, lessen in their strength. Sometimes they go away completely or they'll change to something else. But we really, when we start to look more closely, we see that their they're, the mind is changing the state of mind is changing. The heart is changing. The environment is changing. And so more and more, when we are not adding more of a struggle on top, we, can, we start to practice. We're bringing in the practice of kindness, the practice of friendliness, the practice of more acceptance. And it seems like this is the step out. This is, we talked this morning about patience. Mark talked about patience bringing in these qualities, because as we bring them in, we are then reinforcing and strengthening these, these, these more positive qualities, these heartful qualities, and, and counteracting the more difficult negative states of mind. So, it's, so, the, so the way these, these teachings and these practices work is we we practice the kindness, we practice the compassion and the equanimity of the patience side by side. It's not like we're rejecting anything that's happening because when we reject it, we're just reinforcing that and strengthening those difficult patterns. The more that we can see, oh yeah, that's what's going on. Let me see if I can bring a kinder approach. Let me see if I can be open. Let me see if I can be friendly and not give myself such a hard time. Not to, because then I'm back into the wanting and the not wanting, the, the greed for other experience and the rejecting of the experience that's happening. And then that makes me very tired. It's very, very tiring, very exhausting to be in that cycle. And then, of course, then uh, more restlessness and agitation comes and then more doubt comes. This is really one of the key uh, teachings that we come to understand in our practice. So more and more we can come into a place of more kind, patient, acceptance, open, allowing, and continue to strengthen and reinforce those, those qualities. And then, the, then we start to move a bit more out of the struggle. We're not reinforcing the struggle. We're not strengthening that struggle. And this, the, unless we are finding a way out, we are just caught. We're just caught in that cycle, and it's very hard to see clearly. It's very hard to, to, to understand what's going on. It just gives rise to more confusion and more anxiety. So, so we lead, so we very much lead with this practice of kindness as much as we can to see if we can pay attention to the, the way that we're talking to ourselves, the kinds of, of voices or thoughts that are arising that are hurtful or negative or judgmental or undermining and see if we can counteract that 
with this kindness. Even sometimes, you know, just putting, our, putting my hand on my heart when I see myself get into that kind of cycle, just my hand on my heart. Just say, may, may I be free of this, of this pain. May I be happy and peaceful. May I be at ease in myself. Just bringing that, bringing that remembrance of my wish, my deeper wish for what I want for myself and what I want for other beings as well. Then we can begin, as the mind settles and the body settles, and we come into more of a place of balance with ourselves, then we can really start to see, well, what's, what's actually needed here? You know, I'm tired, maybe, maybe I need a rest, or I'm quite agitated, maybe I, I need to just take some more calm and more gentle breaths, or maybe I need to go for a gentle walk, or maybe I need to just sit in the sun and let the sun warm my body, or maybe I, I really need a cup of tea because I'm dehydrated and I'm uncomfortable, or maybe I need to stand up because my body's in a lot of pain. And then we can really address our needs so much better. We can take care of ourselves so much with so much more, more care and clarity and kindness. So, so we're wanting to, as we, as we start to step more and more out of the cycle, come into more calm, more balance, then we can attend to ourselves in this way. No one really said this is an easy path. It's not an easy, direct path. It's like Mark was saying, or Spring was saying, it's kind of like, okay, we start this, and now you know, we're just going to feel bliss and light and happiness, and yeah, we're on our way now, yay. You know? It's like, kind of not really like that. And sometimes we're a little surprised when we run into a lot of difficulty. Jesus even pointed this out. In Matthew, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to suffering. And those who go through it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to the happiness of true life. And those who find it are few. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to the happiness of true life and those who find it are, fr- are few. Because people don't generally want to choose <laughs> you know, the kind of confrontation that's required for this kind of deep looking and deep connection with ourselves. So everyone here has come with a clear intention, with a kind intention to walk this path, to take a look, to see what is actually possible for us here as we look more deeply into our mind and our heart. But these difficulties that we go, to, go through are actually difficulties that with awareness and with kindness and with Uh, interest in investigation, we can then come to the end of the difficulties. This isn't going into the difficulties where we're just adding more and more and more on top of it and then just caught in this swirl and the struggle. Because we're bringing along our mindfulness, our awareness, our love, our compassion, our interest, all these beautiful qualities, we can bring it to an end. And this is what the Buddha says, we can end our suffering. There is suffering and we can end this suffering. This is what this spiritual path is about. It's a path we might call a path of untangling. We're untangling ourselves from the knots of these difficult patterns or unraveling ourselves. Another way I think about it is uh, taking away the veils, that the veils or the unveiling, those veils that cloud the mind where we're not able to see so clearly of what's true and what's real for us as human beings. Rumi, this wonderful, one of my favorite poets, has this beautiful poem that I said to Spring earlier, I said, I could just sit with this poem all day and contemplate this poem because it just... Everything's, everything's here for me. 
Rumi says, This is love, to fly toward a secret sky, to cause a hundred veils to fall each moment. This is love, to fly towards a secret sky, to cause a hundred veils to fall each moment. And I really think that's what this practice does when we're really connecting with our experience and bringing awareness, the kind awareness, patient acceptance. In that moment, it, it causes a hunt, all the veils to start melting away, the veils that cloud, that, that distort our, our, our vision, our view. And I, I, I love the image of the, of the, the, the hundred veils falling. The hundred veils falling. And it's, but each moment, it's like there's so many layers. There's so many layers of the veils. It seems like every moment we need to keep our practice alive every moment because it seems that that uh, confusion comes back. The patterns can come back so quickly. And so we continue to stay, uh, stay here and, and stay present and stay committed to this connection and to this love and to this care because of the strength of these pat the patterning the conditioning that makes up who we take ourselves to be these emotional and mental veils it's like it's like looking through colored glasses you know not such a good color you know kind of a gray color <laughs> and everything kind of looks gray you know or sometimes we look through rose-colored glasses and things look rosy, but actually they're not so rosy, you know? I mean, we can, we can go either way. We can put on the, oh, everything's great, everything's fine, but actually there's some things that we really should be looking at. But then there's the other glasses as well, the more the gray, darker glasses where everything looks very glum and gloomy and dreary. And... But it's the, the, the veil, the veiling where we're not seeing so clearly. So what, what colors the glasses? What brings about this distortion for us, on a, like having these glasses on? The Buddha would call it wrong view. You know, that we're just not seeing clearly, we're not understanding clearly. And it's a view, as the Buddha talks about, it's a view of me that is separated from everything else. A me that is isolated, that is separated, that is disconnected, and that view seems very solid. I'm over here, everything else is over there, the other is over there, and this is who I am. And it's so believable that these boundaries, this sense of separation becomes so fixed that we don't sometimes even feel our sense of connectedness, our, our interconnectedness, the, the more the universal, uh, uh, the love and connection that is truly there all the time. All the time. It is our nature. It is the nature of all things. But it, when we get into this very solid, fixed idea of who I am and the other is over there and everything else is outside, from this place, the world does not feel like a very safe place to be, right? I'm going to feel quite a lot of fear. I'm going to feel lonely. I'm going to feel cut off and isolated. And likely, I'm going to feel somewhat empty and hollow inside as well because I'm, not, I'm, I'm disconnected from the way things really are. And from this view of separation, of what we call ego separation, I'm going to look for safety and refuge outside of myself. I'm going to look for it somewhere else because I've lost connection with the source that is right here within my own heart, within my own being. And when I'm viewing from this way, then my needs become even more intensified 
I can make even more demands and expectations and then have judgments and blame when I'm not getting what I want and, and things aren't going my way and I can start to feel some despair and, and, uh, and confusion about what's going to happen and the, the fear can even start to get bigger and stronger. When that happens, my love, the love that I feel is going to start to be somewhat conditional or contractional, contractual. I will love you if you give me this or if you treat me like this. No, I'm starting to make demands because I don't trust, I don't feel safe. There's a way that this, that the, the, my, my experience and the world starts to become very rigid, very solid from here. Just wondering if as I talk about this, just kind of check in and reflect for yourself if you can recognize these kinds of patterns occurring where this kind of the, there's some anxiety or some fear that starts to arise because you need, you have to have and that kind of a, a, a insecurity and a lack of trust about the source and the, the source of this love and, and where, how, how, how things actually operate in this world. Can you kind of sense that sometimes? And maybe not all the time. You know, maybe just in re- re- regards to certain situations that you may have more investment in or people that you have more investment in to give you that sense of security and happiness. Our love, our love gets distorted. Our love isn't flowing quite so uh, easily and beautifully and connectedly. There's, There's so much more expectation that can start to arise for our love. And it all seems so real and the way it actually is. I was talking about this once and this uh, man, um, I think it must have been even in a morning question and answer period, where he was talking about his experience where he um, uh, wanted to have a a pet. And so he went and got a puppy. And he was really happy, you know, that he had this little puppy. And puppies are, you know, they're just bundles of love, right? You know, they're just, um, they bounce around, they lick, you know, they're just one, they're so happy when they see you. And, you know, there's so much um, connection. And I mean, I think that's, you know, animals uh, are such amazing teachers for us in that regard. You know, they, they do help us open our heart. And this man was talking about how he was just so, so in love with this little puppy. But then the puppy started acting like a puppy, <laughs> started peeing where he didn't want the puppy to pee and biting things and, and eating up things he didn't want the puppy to eat and started wrecking havoc in his, in his house. And it wasn't what he wanted, you know, started getting very angry and impatient and you know, started to be conditional. (laughs) Like, you're only going to stay in this house if, you know, if you act like this or you do these things. And we sort of forget, we forget it's a puppy. (laughs) A puppy's puppy's being a puppy. Puppy nature. That's how puppies are. And this man was, was, he was having this insight, you know, this revelation, you know, the expectations and the demands and the conditions that he was putting on this very innocent little animal who he loved, but then the love started getting confused and started taking it all very seriously. And of course we don't want the puppy to pee where we don't want the puppy to pee and we don't want the puppy to eat things that it's, you're not supposed to eat. But I think we've, there's a place we, we take it all too seriously. You know, we forget. We forget that this is the, the nature of things. It's the nature of life. And I made that choice. He made that choice, you know. It's not like somebody, you know, made him get that puppy. You know? So it's like, you know, just starting to see things with a, with a little bit more clarity. The... the wonderful poet Emerson said, what is life but an angle of vision? But an angle of vision. It's all in the way that we look at it. This is from Albert Einstein, another 
great thinker. He said, a human being is part of the whole. One experiences oneself, one's thoughts, feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and a foundation for inner security. I love his words, his words as a kind of optical delusion of consciousness, right? That's really, that's really all that's happening. No, it's not that anything really needs to change. It's just that, you know, it's just this angle of vision. It's just the way we're looking at things. Things are just as they are. It's just that everything has its, everything arises due to certain causes and conditions. Everything has its own nature. Even our own mind and our own body and other people's minds and bodies and all of nature. How do we engage with that? How are we with that? Because when we're not, when, when our love gets distorted through this optical delusion of consciousness, what happens is what the Buddha calls um, the, the near enemy to loving kindness. So it looks like love, but it's actually a little bit distorted. And that distortion is when the love starts to become possessed love or attached love, which I was just speaking about, where that neediness, you know, that, that sense of insecurity starts to arise, where I need this thing or you or whatever it is, and the, the attachment starts to, be, to lead. And if the ego self, we're, we're identified with this ego self and that's leading, it's almost like that when we get close to something that we love, we start wanting to possess it. It's like it's mine. I, this is for me and it's mine and nobody else can have it. And there's this whole kind of little bubble that we start to enter into, which can narrow our, under, narrow our experience and make us feel very small and, and, and agitated and, and despairing with this, this attachment. I was, I was visiting some friends um, in New Zealand who had a couple of small children, um, two boys, two brothers, and we, I was sitting in the living room with my friend, and then all of a sudden there was this whole eruption that happened in the other room. The, the, the boys just started, just, you know, really getting so upset and so angry uh, with each other. And so I went into the room, you know, I wanted to know what was going on. And I walk in, and there's just like the room, it wasn't a big room, but it was mostly filled with Lego, Lego parts. It was like this massive pile of Legos. And there, and what was happening was there was one Lego piece that this little boy had to have. <laughs> I mean, there must have been like 500 pieces, but that piece was the one that this little boy had to have, but his brother wanted it. So it was just the one piece that became life and death. You know, it was like if this little boy didn't have that piece of Lego... It was over. You know, his life was over. So they were, you know, screaming and yelling and, you know, no, it's mine. No, it's mine. No, I've got to have it. No, and crying. And, but, you know, it's, 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 of course, you know, children, we see that. That's not unusual at all for children to get into that kind of uh, uh, experience together, situation together. But it's, that's the mind state, <laughs> That's the very mind state. It's mine. And I have to have it. And if I don't, then life is over. It's like it's over. I can't go on. I can't go on. And, and so it, it, it was very, it was, I think what's really stood out for me was that there were just so many pieces. 
<laughs> and when the mind, not that this is the way these, these children should have looked at it, but for when there's more clarity, when we see, when we can just back up a little bit and step out and look at the bigger picture a little bit more, what happens is there's actually many options. There's many possibilities for us. But the mind can get and does get very fixated on one solution or one possibility. And we're not really seeing the picture very clearly. When we get attached in this way, of course, then the, then the opposite is then we'll fear the impending loss of that thing. Somehow that will, even if we get it, we're going to lose it. Right? Because everything changes. Everything comes and goes. We will lose that thing at some point. Mary Oliver says, everything dies too soon. Everything dies too soon. Nothing lasts at all. So again, we have the, we step back, seeing things from a little bigger point of view. Probably many of you are aware of uh, the Doubt, Doubt and Abbey series. I don't know, it was very popular on TV, but you know, this um, uh, English, English, very wealthy English family that lived in a big, big palace state. And uh, Julian Fellows is the creator, the writer of this um, wonderful, wonderful TV series. Um, and I saw this little interview with him, and I was really taken by it because Julian Fellows is clearly an amazingly creative man, very, you know, wonderful gifts, very creative, and, and also now quite wealthy. And, and he said, this is what Julian Fellows said, um, uh, he, well, he said, um, his anxiety went from, will I ever make it, to, might I lose everything? said, I think I'm more fearful of the future now, he said, sipping his tea. I always feel that there's some giant hand about to lean in and snatch it all away from me, saying, that wasn't meant for you. (laughs) Emma, his wife, he said, has this completely different quality of living in the present. It's just been very helpful to me to live with someone who doesn't think, oh my God, what if it all stops tomorrow? Of course, it's absurd to live your life dreading some unspecified disaster. He sees that, but yet he got caught in that. So interesting, you know, sometimes more than, he said, my anxiety went from will I ever make it to might I lose everything, right? So the anxiety is still very much in place, even as he was, you know, getting more and more successful. I really looked you know, we can look more deeply at the source of that anxiety itself. Because the more we hold on, there's actually, it's, it's a stronger belief in the separation because I think I have to hold on in order to keep it. You know, or order to, in order for that thing to stay. But as I let go, open up a little bit more, I start to can feel and sense more trust in the way things are unfolding, that everything has its own nature. But if I'm holding on stronger and making more demands and having more expectations on life and people and things, then the love, our love just keeps contracting more and more. The heart contracts more. We feel more bounded more rigid, more, more, in some ways our world becomes smaller. This is what happens when the heart contracts, when our love contracts. And then what arises is what the Buddha calls the far enemy of loving kindness. The far enemy of loving kindness is the opposite. It's very opposite. So rather than having, um, uh, disguising itself as love-like attached love, it could feel like there's loving kindness, but there's attachment, there's ego there. But as we get even more and more caught, we move fully away from the love into the opposite, which 
the far enemy of loving kindness is ill will or aversion or anger, um, hate. Completely the opposite. We go all the way to the other end. The, the heart is so contracted. That it's, it's almost like the love. The love doesn't even have a chance to really come through and express itself in its beautiful way. And if we're not getting what we want and the heart constricts, we, we know this experience. We all have had this experience where we act out our anger or we lash out. And, and, it, and what's so unfortunate is that we actually want to sometimes hurt the very thing that we love, the very person that we love. Because we, we get so confused about what we're really doing and how things really are. And then we hurt ourselves. We feel, we feel that pain and that sorrow and that hurt that happens for us. And we do this to ourselves. It's not like we just do this to other people. We can feel that self-hate within our own minds, the judgment, the expectation, the demands. It's very painful, a very painful experience. I almost feel like this love gets so contracted, it's like a, like a piece of black coal. You know, it just, just gets more and more dense and contracted. And when I was reflecting on this, uh, I mentioned this once before, that this memory came that I was so surprised because I hadn't had it in so long. And I remembered when I was a child that for some reason, I don't know what I did, you know, what, what, what I did that was so awful, but my parents put black coal in my Christmas stocking. And, and maybe... I think when I told this once before, somebody said, ah, that happened to me too. My parents put black coal in my Christmas stocking. And it was, you know, it was a kind of like, you were a bad girl, you know, so you get this black coal, you know. And, and it was so hurtful. It was just so like, what? <laughs> yeah. But it's that kind of, um, you know, it, it's like the heart sometimes just gets that sort of contraction. My my parents were actually wonderful parents. But we all know, we all know how there can just be that moment or those moments where it's like, got to give something back because we didn't like what happened. You know? So, but when somebody treats us like that and we get that kind of message, particularly when we're young, it just, it can strengthen those negative beliefs and those negative ideas, that sense of unworthiness. It can confirm that for us, that something really is wrong with me. Something's really wrong with me. And the more we get that message, the more somebody gets that, it, it, it's, uh, we, we want to hide away we start to feel the shame and the, the inner pain. And I think so many of us have that kind of compartment within our own heart where we think that I, something must be wrong with me. You know? But again, nothing really is wrong. That's what's so sad about this predicament is nothing is wrong. There is some kind of uh, reinforced idea or message that you or me received over a period of time and at some point that message just goes in and we start to believe it. Something must be wrong. But there is nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me. The only thing that has happened is that the source of my love or the source of your love has been suffocated, has been covered over through those messages or those impressions, through those ideas, through that conditioning is what we call it. But nothing is wrong. Nothing's wrong. There is a story that we, that we tell, um, some of you may have heard it, about the Dalai Lama. When the Dalai Lama came to teach at one of our sister centers on the East Coast at the Insight Meditation Society, and of course, the Dalai Lama is the archetype of compassion himself. I mean, Mr., you know, complete, uh, uh, beautiful expression of compassion. And he was leading um, uh, a session at one of, one of our centers some years ago. And he gave a talk, and then he asked if anybody had something they wanted to comment on. And this man who was sitting in the front said, 
you know, something about, you know, what a terrible person he was and, you know, all the judgment he had towards himself and he, you know, was really, you know, he knew something was wrong with him. And while he was talking, the, the Dalai Lama looked at him like he was, the Dalai Lama was completely confused. Like he almost like didn't, like he didn't understand the language, it, but he did. But it was just like, what? You, you think something's wrong with you? And he, the, the Dalai Lama was I, almost in tears because of his compassion for this man who actually believed that something was wrong. And the Dalai Lama said, you're wrong. You're wrong. Nothing is wrong with you. And it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful moment where there's someone seeing us so clearly and they're, and in this case, almost bewildered. Like, what? I mean, you are so wrong. Because what the Dalai Lama was seeing was the Buddha. He was seeing the Buddha sitting there. The Buddha, the, a beautiful manifestation of the Buddha. So sometimes we need this kind of reflection. Sometimes we need somebody who can, you know, hold that reflection back up and say, no, this is what's really true about you. This is who you are. You're beautiful. You are love incarnated. You are the divine manifestation of nature. You are Kuan Yin. You know, I mean, holding that up so that we can really see ourselves and know ourselves. And this is what this practice does, this practice of loving kindness. In a way, it's sort of holding up that mirror. Even though, you know, there's someone there might be saying, this isn't true. (laughs) This isn't who I am. And, you know, somebody mentioned this morning, you know, how it can feel very mechanical and it doesn't feel true and I don't know really why I'm saying it or what's the point. But yet there's some other aspect of our consciousness, of our being, of our, of our self is saying, be happy, be peaceful. You, you deserve love. Accept yourself just as you are. Love yourself just as you are. And this beautiful, loving, kind voice that's coming from our own being and our own heart that is reflecting this back to us, that is whispering this to us. And for me in my practice, that's how the loving kindness started to feel over time. And I did so much loving kindness practice. And it was like, like an angel, like there was an angel whispering in my ear. This loving, kind, caring voice. But yet that was coming from my own source of being. My own mind, my own consciousness. And loving kindness was very difficult for me in the beginning. I had so much resistance. I had a friend who said to me, you know, when I I was, one time I was telling her that I was going to be teaching some metta, and she looked at me, she said, you used to run out of the room every time they were going to do metta. You know, I said, oh yeah, that's right, you know, but that's, you know, I'm, I, I did keep doing it, you know, I kept doing it. And I did keep doing it because I believed that um, it was working, it was working and it did work. I would put my hand on my heart. I would just keep putting my hand on my heart and wishing myself love, wishing myself to be happy, wishing myself to be free of the anxiety, free of the pain, to live with ease, to feel ease, to be free of the self-hatred, to be free of the judgment, to be free of the expectation. You know, just keep telling myself a different story, telling myself a different story. And I think that's what kept me going because I wanted to hear a different story (laughs) than the story that I was telling myself most of the time when I wasn't really paying such close attention but just feeling the batteredness or, you know, being attacked by my own mind again and again and again. So finally finding some ground, some foundation, some uh, place within my own being that I could counter that, 
to pull these phrases, pull up the, the attitude of mind, pull up the, feel the kindness, and then incline my mind, turn my mind towards that goodness. To turn my mind towards the patience, turn my mind towards the acceptance, towards the friendliness. Make that the stronger default position. And it takes time. Because the default position can so easily be one of negativity and unkindness. And so we're really attempting to shift that balance. So rather than the default landing in the unkindness, we land more and more in the kindness. This is the turning, the turning of the mind, turning the heart towards our goodness. We're really practicing a simple love. It's so, just a simple intention, a simple wish. I think as Spring said this morning, you know, just we're not doing anything too complicated here. Just every now and then, you know, just remembering to say, you know, be happy, be healthy, be safe, be at ease. Whether we're turning that in towards ourselves or we're turning that towards somebody else. I'm just remembering one of our teachers, Manindraji, um, when he, Indian teacher from Calcutta, the teacher uh, for Joseph Goldstein, in the early days when we brought him out to San Francisco, Joseph uh, took him to the aquarium, San Francisco Aquarium, and Manindraji just went around to all the tanks of the fish and just tapped on all the tanks, be happy, be happy, be happy. You know, he just went through the whole aquarium, just blessing, you know, all the fish, all the different creatures in the aquarium. You know, just this upwelling of, of goodwill, this upwelling of blessing towards all beings everywhere. You know, this, is, this is what we're attempting to cultivate within our own heart, within our own being. But it's, it's really very simple because it's just one moment, one moment when I'm not holding on to something that I think should be happening and I'm not pushing anything away that is happening. It's just one moment where I'm just here with what is, as it is, in a kind way. And I don't have to be a fully awake Buddha to be in that place. It's one moment that is available to us at any given moment if there is that upwelling of remembering, just remembering in one moment. It's this beautiful um, saying from the Talmud. When Akiba was on his deathbed, he bemoaned to his rabbi that he felt he was a failure. His rabbi moved closer and asked why, and Akiba confessed that he had not lived a life like Moses. The poor man began to cry, admitting that he feared God's judgment. At this, his rabbi leaned into his ear and whispered gently, God will not judge Akiba for not being Moses. God will judge Akiba for not being Akiba. God will judge Akiba for not being Akiba. From the Talmud, just right there, that simple love, uncomplicated love for what's here right now. So for us in our practice here, having the intention is enough. The fact that you are here is enough. You've already demonstrated your intention for this because you're here. So that willingness to have arrived here and then the willingness to stay here is already enough. And then the intention to keep the practice going in any way that you do that. The beautiful thing is that being here together and all of us together, the teachers and the managers and all of the, the whole community here, and then of course the whole staff, all, all those down below that we don't even see, 
all of what's happening here, along with all the creatures and the animals and the sun and the moon and the sky and the plants and the nature and the silence, all of it creates a field. All of it creates an environment of kindness. It all creates an environment of safety. It all creates an environment of refuge for us. So there's really, at some level, there isn't anything you need to do. Just bathe in what's here. Bathe in this like, a, like, like slipping into a warm bath. Just drink it in, receive what's being offered here. There's, this, there's so much that's happening in a, in a, in a, uh, almost in the invisible field, that which we can't even know, that, myster- that mysterious field where there is so much going on that this small little mind can't even begin to understand, can't even begin to access. So this is why we just try to trust. Just trust. Trust that you have arrived here Trust that you are here. Trust that everybody is here for some reason. You all got here, collected here together. We all got here. And now something is happening. Something is occurring. And as Rumi said, this is love. To fly toward a secret sky. To cause a hundred veils to fall in each moment then you will know love that is intricately woven into the fabric of your being already. A love that is already here as these veils start to fall. And I, I, I wish each of you for this blessing. I wish each of you to have this blessing of, this, of your time here. And may it be very fruitful, very fulfilling. May you receive all the blessings of your aspirations, of your heart. So let's just sit quietly for just a, a few moments. You don't even have to shift your posture if you don't want coming into the silence as we let these words settle. Just being right where you are and seeing if you can embrace yourself in this loving kindness. May all beings everywhere awaken to their loving heart. Thank you for your kind attention. It's just about 25 after 8 right now, so we'll have um, some time for walking in the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.